Hey, Mike. How's it going? Pretty good, mate. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Off to a smooth start oh, as ever. As always. Um, so, mate, how have you been? Very well. That's good. Had a good Christmas, good New Year. Looking forward to Chinese New Year. That's yep. coming up soon, I think. Yep, this week. What about you? Uh, mate, yeah, good. It's been actually a while between drinks for us, I think. Quite, quite literally. Yeah, yeah. Um, had a really good Christmas break. Didn't see much downtime, unfortunately. Um, well, fortunately, business-wise, unfortunately, in terms of getting a really good holiday period in. But um, came back fairly relaxed. And we, um, I guess with this podcast, we put this one in the can um, late December. So it's taken us a little while to, to get to it. But, yeah, we're, um, we're experimenting, experimenting, experimenting with ageing of podcasts. <laughs> I think it's a little known, little known uh, discipline. But uh, I think like most things, they improve with age. Um, yeah, let's, would you agree? Sure. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that. Um, so our guest, you organised this one as well. So um, yeah, so well Mark Jensen. Yes, uh, I guess uh, highly interested in this for a few reasons. Issues close to my heart: the venues in Sydney and how you build successful ones. And yeah. I mean, how often do you hear about a restaurant that has been around for ten years in Sydney? I mean, it's like a unicorn almost. You would yeah. Think. And um, I guess Red Lantern. I'm trying to think about when it may have kicked off it must have been 2001 2002 on crown street there and mm-hmm. and then uh it moved to riley street um you know it must be in the last five years or something yeah let's just make that up and say it's about that yeah but uh and, and mark um is one of three people behind i guess key people behind red lantern uh, uh alongside i guess most famously luke newman who yeah. uh, most people would recognize as a household name um and uh, and Luke's sister Pauline, who's I guess an entrepreneur in her own right. So, um, and um, yeah, it's uh, so. Firstly, an amazing um, quality offering that has stood the test of time, and um, quite keen to uh, understand or, or talk to him about that. Uh, and also, he um, has been. Uh, another issue about sustainability of restaurants is is how delivery services factor into their business models. Yeah, uh, delivery services and building engines. So, quite keen to pick his brain on that because I know he's a man with some strong points of view. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, interesting when you introduced him to me um, outside of this introduction to the podcast. Um, I think most people would assume that Luke Newen is very much you know the the driving force in the kitchen at that restaurant. Not maybe not on the day to day pants perspective, but from a creative aspect. But I understand. And um, that's not necessarily the case. It'll be interesting to see how the, the breakup of kind of roles and responsibilities within the team works, and then how to build a, a long-standing, um, sustainable restaurant. Uh, you know, will be highly valuable to a lot of a lot of our listeners. I think. Yeah, great. Let's get into it. Welcome, Mark Jensen, to the Back of House podcast. Michael Rodriguez here with my co-host Luke Butler. Hello. Hello. How's it going, gentlemen? <laughs> Very well, thank you. <laughs> we are so smooth when it comes to introductions here. Always. <laughs> Always. It could just be this time of year, though. It is getting to the yes. to two weeks out before we shut down, something like that. Probably about two, yeah, for, yeah. for most people. I yeah. imagine the last two uh, the last two weeks is Friday. I don't know, was anyone out on Friday? Yeah. You would have been maybe seeing, serving yeah, guests. Yeah, I was serving. Was, uh, it's, it's definitely started. The, the silly <laughs> yeah. season has started. We've had lots of big parties and groups through the restaurant already. So we've got two weeks to look forward to. 
Mm. Yeah. And does it just crank and crank and crank and then go dead in your, your part of town or does it keep going? Well, this time of year is really interesting because that Red Lantern, it, it's like I always find that the party's either at your place or it's at someone else's. So it can go either way. So, <laughs> so you're really looking at your forward bookings and going, okay, great, I'm going to look forward to this. And then, and then you try and do some target marketing around the, the other times just to get people through. Yeah. And so we were talking just a little bit before. Uh, you've been part of the Red Lantern story from day one from inception from inception yeah and um and we recall fondly the crown street digs although i must say i didn't recall as fondly trying to get into the crown street digs when it kicked off because it was uh it took a degree of dexterity (laughs) (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean that was like you know luke my my brother-in-law has just stroke of genius he wanted to bring vietnamese experience into the inner city and i think vietnamese food at that time was really kind of underrated but they're like people know thai in this city people love thai in sydney so it was a fantastic idea to bring vietnamese food to surrey hills and I remember at the time I was working at the Olympic Hotel and I actually started dating his sister, Pauline, and he was looking for a chef. And I was thinking, you know, I've been here at the Olympic five years. It's probably time for a new beginning. And I just put my hand up and said, Luke, I know how to cook. I've never used a wok before. I, don't, I know what a cleaver is, but I'm prepared to give it a go. And that's how our professional relationship started. I've got a few questions about that. because. Yeah, sure. How long had you been dating your sister for before you said you wanted a new beginning? Because <laughs> that could have gone one of two ways. Yeah. Sure, sure. Well, I, I think it was possibly only six months. It was really only six months. But now, like, Paulie and I are still still together and we're still in business uh, with Luke. And I often say that, you know, that's 16 years. Like, 16 years is like if it was animal years, it'd be like 2070 or something. That's a lot of time to be in business in a relationship. Like, I business relationship but also Mm. being in a human relationship with someone yeah i I wanted to ask you that because we've in the time we've been doing the podcast had a few examples of people that i guess work quite closely with life partners Mm. or spouses um we've had josh nylon on um who together with julie uh, has been in business and then i think our first guest luke was daniel allen who that was a four-way yeah. relationship between best friend and their husbands all working together, which is yeah, a whole new level of complexity. But it, it, um, it does. Like you, you, you're doubling down, aren't you? There's the personal life, the business interests and so on. And But it, you've made it, well, to the outside looking in, you've made it work. But has it been been hard has well, it been good has it been it, it certainly hasn't been easy i mean it's, it's obviously a journey life's always a journey right and then you start out and i think you we kind of just went all in we said we've got to make this work and then it wasn't too far into the experience that we realized that hang on we've got to identify our strengths like you might think that that's probably i would actually in retrospect say any you know first time is in the industry identify your strengths straight up so we you know, a very short time, identified our strengths. So Luke, Pauline and myself have very distinct and individual roles within the business and we come together and work on that. And I also uh, would say you have to set up boundaries really early on yeah. and especially you can't you can't take work home. And that's impossible, but you have to sort of go, okay, I've got to stop talking about work now and we've got to, we've got to live family life, we've got to live our personal relationship life now and you have to make really distinct um, definitions and draw the line. Yeah, and what are the skill sets? Which going back to the yeah, well, what I just said. Well, you know, I would say 
like I'm the creative one. So I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the kitchen. I'm, I'm hands on on the tools. I'm, I'm doing the menus. I'm, I'm, I'm the artist for another word. And then you have Luke, who is just exceptional personality. Like, I mean, he, he can cook, of course, but he is just exceptional personality. And for anyone that's seen him on television, I'm sure they'd agree with me. He's, he's just such a, what you see is what you get. He's just a genuine guy. And Pauline, she, she just can't stop learning that girl. Like, and she's one of those things that's just always learning. So she's, she's all over her social media. She's all over her, her marketing. She's all over her personal development. So, so she's really the driving force behind, behind the business. And she kind of corrals Luke and myself together and, and have propelled this forward, this journey forward. Yeah, well, it would be the first uh, example of behind two powerful men as an even more powerful woman. <laughs> <laughs> you, um, I guess we, we had the benefit of a conversation before starting this. Um, you mentioned before you were at the Olympic Hotel prior. Where did your journey into hospitality, cooking, where did that start? Yeah. Where, where we take us back to the... Yeah, well, I'll, t- I'll take you way back. I mean, I left school and I thought, well, you know, I did okay, but I did, had no idea what I wanted to do. And I actually started a hairdressing apprenticeship. So yeah, I'm, right. a qu- I'm a qualified hairdresser. And um, so I did that for about eight years and I thought, you know what, this hairdressing gig is really a gig for extroverts. And I'm really quite an introvert by, by nature. So I was really kind of lost because I didn't mind the cutting hair part, but talking to people 24-7 used to drive me insane. So I actually took a bit of time out. I I went back and did a bridging course, got into university. I started studying English and English literature. And I did that for 18 months. And then that wasn't really panning out the way I thought it would. So I went, I moved to Byron Bay, you know, that classic get out of Sydney, I'll go to Byron Bay. And I ended up working in a restaurant. And in that restaurant, I started as a waiter and I thought, well, this is kind of okay, but I'd rather wash pots. So I started washing washing the pots. You really are an introvert. That's right. (laughs) That's right. So so I I started washing pots and then, you know, my eye was on the guy doing the salad. I went, that looks pretty good. So then I sort of asked the chef and he said, yeah, you can do a couple of shifts on the salad. And then I went from salad and I thought, this is good. And then I thought, hey, I really like this. This is my in. I really have found somebody that I really do enjoy. Mm. So I moved back to Sydney and I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'll, you know, be, having done one apprenticeship, I'm quite happy to do another one. So I jumped in and started a, a, a chef's apprenticeship and I answered a job with Matthew Moran, like back in probably 1990 or, or so. He right. was at the uh, Paddington Inn. Yeah, on Oxford Street there in Paddington. And I started working in his bistro and that's really how it all began. So I worked with Matt there for about three years. Yep. And then I worked to, and mind you, I was 27 at this stage. So the idea of going overseas and doing stages at, at great restaurants never entered my mind because right. really it was what I wanted to really fast track my career. At 27, I pretty much had no savings in the bank. And I thought, well, I want to fast track this. So I worked for Matt for, th- for three years. Matt is amazing person and this is something I learned Matt is a classic extrovert he is such a people's person and it's taken me a long time to really I'm getting into sidetracked here but it's taken me a a long time to realize that this industry is all about people so even if you're cooking in the back 
and you don't see anyone. It's about people. It's about. And I would urge chefs to get out there and actually meet people and make connections. Yeah. Because without those connections, like people can get food anywhere, mm. but they can't get your food everywhere. Yeah. And they can't get you everywhere. So really, it's all about personality and human connection. So to bring it back to Matt, he was just fantastic. Oh, a, he's a great chef. He's got good training, but he's a really good people person. He could, he could, he knew everyone. And he actually introduced me to, I think, uh, Yanni Kadistas or a job came up at the Benelong restaurant at the yep. Sydney Opera House. And at that time, that restaurant was amazing. It was a three-chef's-hat restaurant. And it's also probably the most beautiful place in the world I've ever worked. So my workstation looked out over Circular Quay. Yeah, wow. So my day was cutting vegetables, preparing fish, and looking out, looking up to see the beautiful Harbour Bridge, the harbour in all its glory. So it was really wonderful. Uh, from there, I stayed with Yanni, who is a mentor and friend still today, as is Matt Moran. And uh, Matt actually approached me and said, okay, you've got this experience now. I know someone who wants to um, open up a restaurant at the Olympic Hotel. Are you keen? And, um, yeah, I was keen. It was like time. It was my time. So I pretty much I did my uh, chef's apprenticeship, and within four years I was actually running my own. Wow. Restaurant, and and that was always the driving force for me. I always wanted to be uh, not so much my own boss, but I knew that if I wanted to make some coin in this business, I had to sort of get to the top pretty damn quickly. Yeah, and and I saw that as an opportunity, so I, I took it. And so when you got that opportunity, was that an, was was that a chance to go in and really deliver the food, the, the creative vision? Um, you know, wholly? Did you have full accountability for that? Absolutely. So I had full accountability. And, of course, coming from working with Yanni, who is, is pretty much a he was a bit of an awful specialist and very much his cooking technique is tied into the French traditional cooking. Yeah. Like he's influenced by Elizabeth David and all the all the great culinary heroes of, of, of you know, Escoffier and all that sort of mm. old school stuff. Um, so a lot of my food was heavily influenced by that. But I had this technique and this understanding of offal and also with Matt's experience with Matt, who's all about fresh, vibrant produce. Like his, his food is very produce-driven. Mm. So I, I married those two experiences and, develop, and eventually developed my own style and my own cuisine. So I'd yeah. say when I initially opened, it was very much what I'd learned at the Benelong restaurant, probably, you know, plagiarism, plagiarising a few dishes, adding a bit of a twist here and there. But until I found my own feet and confidence, because yeah. it's a big gig going from, you know, doing what the chef wants you to do to then all of a sudden, okay, I'm the chef and I've got to drive this animal. I've got to drive, I've got totally. to drive this machine forward. So it took me a little while to put on that cap. And also I didn't do it alone. I had some great... Mm. Chef offside has come to work with me as well. So who went on to, you know, one of them was like food editor of Delicious Magazine. One of them went on to open up MG Garage at that time was a yeah. fantastic restaurant. So, I mean, I had lots of help. Without that help, I probably wouldn't have made the start that I did. Your food evolution, you're saying that you brought together uh, some of the offal tricks, Matt's produce, but then you've gone across to Red Lantern 
and there's a pretty strong personality or suggestion about what direction that's going to be via Luke. Like how did your own style and his come together or emerge and, you know, I suppose continue in the last well, however long it's been? Yeah, well, the thing is I was, I was a student. Like I, I said, I, I, I knew nothing about the cuisine. I actually knew nothing about Asian culture. I mean, when I, I grew up in Brisbane, and I, I can tell you not, I went through a whole of high school with one Chinese girl, one. Yeah. Whereas now the suburb I grew up in Brisbane is like so amazing. It's 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 full of Southeast Asian. It's like the, the restaurants. It's got a really strong mm. restaurant scene. It's like it's it's crazy. It's a really fantastic and wonderful progression of a, of a suburb. Uh, but going back into Red Lantern, I, I was like just had to be the student. I mean, I was really fortunate enough that he, the family brought in a 70 plus um, years old Vietnamese man who I always called Sifu. So in Asian culture, you can call it like the master of cooking a Sifu and the master of martial arts a Sifu. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. So my Sifu taught me everything I know. So he taught me how to use a wok. He taught me how to use a cleaver. He taught me the food. So the recipes came from Luke's mum and dad and Luke would interpret them and then we'd get together and then we'd put them together. But Sifu actually taught me the techniques. He taught me to listen to a wok. So I remember asking him once, he said, oh, I said, Sifu, how do you know when the wok is ready to fry something? He said, you put your finger in it. I went, <laughs> Seriously? He said, no, you put your finger in it. And what he meant, you skim your finger across the top of the, of the oil and you know when it's hot. And he wasn't joking, right? right? But then the evolution of that was, I think it was play. It's like, you know, go find me a left-handed hammer, that kind of yeah. thing. I think, he was playing with me. <laughs> I think he was playing with me a little bit. But ultimately he taught me how to listen to a wok. So, you know, if there's any moisture in the oil, when you turn the wok on, it starts out really loud. And then as the water evaporates, you, you know that it's, you know, the, the noise gets less and less intense. Yeah. So eventually it's just this nice silence and that's when you know that, the oil is, is ready to fry. So it, it, it's interesting. I think in an in a Asian kitchen, I rely on my hearing quite a lot for when I cook. It's obviously sight and smell, of course, but my hearing plays a pretty important role. Yeah. So really, I owe everything I know about Vietnamese cuisine to the Nguyen family, like Luke, Pauline and their parents. Yeah, they sound like quite a, a, a nice family. And I only say that because... Uh, not that I know the world, but he, you meet him. What you see on TV is what you get in person. You know, it's quite incredible. There's no, there's no production to that. I've seen him carry uh, his cameraman's ladder or tripod along just to help him out. Um, yeah. And in terms of like the the evolution of, of, of Red Lantern and, and, and its its relocation to Riley Street, and and I guess in uh, I'm curious because we haven't had. A restaurateur of your longevity on the podcast before. How much has the business of restaurants changed in that time, um, in, in, in 15, 20 years? Wow, it's changed a lot. And I, mean, I must say straight up, Red Lantern has been an amazing vehicle for Pauline, Luke and myself. So we opened up and we got so much attention that we're actually, actually talking to Matthew Kemp and Matt Moran. <laughs> Uh, back in, I think, 2002, there was a documentary called Heat in the Kitchen that SBS funded and produced. Right. And it, took, it was all about the hat system to tie it back into the good food guide. And it was about how much do you really need a hat to be a successful restaurant in this town? So I think at that time, Aria Restaurant had gone from two hats down to one. I think Matthew Kemper Balzac had gone from one hat up to two. And here was little old Red Lantern in Surrey Hills in a 
you know, dinky kind of terrace house, doing great numbers week after week with no hat at all. So I was looking at the three different businesses and um, it was actually, it's probably still available out there in internet land if you wanted to, to look for that, heat in the kitchen. But from that ex- that exposure, that exposed Luke to the world, like people saw what he could do, mm-hmm. saw what I could do and saw what Polly do. So from that we got a book deal. So Redland got a book deal, um, Secrets for Red Blanton. Pauline essentially wrote a family memoir and Luke and I contributed uh, recipes. And Pauline won debut writer of the year that year for that book. Awesome achievement. So then on the back of that, Luke and I got asked, uh, well, what can you do for the publishing <laughs> yeah. houses? Like, you know, yeah, okay, right. well, you've given us this. This has been quite successful. So what have you got up your sleeve? And I was very big on sustainability because, interestingly, going from working with Matt and from Yanni and top suppliers and producers in in the country to working for a small Vietnamese family business where mum and dad were like, you spent more than $5 on a chicken? Are you an idiot? Are you wasting my son's money? Like, what do you know about food? And and I get it because in Asian cuisine, you, you you can turn make anything so flavoursome with sauces and and technique. Uh, So I kind of get that. So anyway, I pitched this idea about sustainability and and essentially getting people into a conversation about where our food comes from. Luke had this fantastic idea about travel because Luke has had the travel bug for years. He's always travelled. He's travelled the world. So his idea was more about let's do travel logs. So I'll go to Vietnam, research, replace, do recipes and this fantastic. They immediately took... Um, Luke's book they told me virtually in the same conversation that my idea was a little bit too progressive for the time Um, and this is gee I can't remember this is dates of kind of lost but it was it wasn't really the hot issue that it became sustainable. It was sort of pre the, where yeah. it became mainstream yeah, kind of if, conversation. If I'd have mm. to say, I'd say maybe you're talking about seven years ago, that yeah. kind of time frame. Yeah. I, it, um, and, and, well, I like the direction that this is headed because the travel bug has been the dominant voice for food in terms of exploration and if you look at how destinations market themselves, it's been on the basis of our food and it sort of accelerated this fascination with different cuisines on the one hand and, and was very much of the zeitgeist seven or so years ago in, in this country. So you were saying then that Luke had the accelerant of the travel side and, and the sustainability piece has been biding its time um, in some ways, I would say. Oh, absolutely biding its time. So, But it was something that I have always been passionate about. Like I, I look after myself. I've always, well, not always. We can talk about that later. <laughs> but <laughs> but there did come a point in my career when I was there late nights, drinking and everything goes with it has to end. I'm going to start looking after myself. So anyway, I've been interested in sustainability for some time. So, And I actually thought this was a hot thing because living in the city, we're so removed from where our food is produced, right? Mm. And, it's, and even the farmer's market thing is a rel- relatively new phenomenon, right? Yeah. So I thought, no, this is something. So I went away and I started doing all that research. You know, I became a great. I, I loved Twitter at that time because I found Twitter was a great social platform to actually meet professors and people that were doing really great work, even farmers on Twitter, really great work in the field about sustainability, and they'd answer your questions 
Whereas, you know, how else would I get in contact with these people? Um, so I just plugged away. I started working. And then about seven, eight months later, I got a phone call from the publisher saying, you know that idea about sustainability? Are you interested in doing it? And I went, well, yeah, maybe. But I was already working on it. But this thing that really gets me about Australia is that cultural cringe kind of thing. I think the green light came because the UK, there's a Hugh Fernley Witten store that right. started doing like So, again, like other yeah. parts of the world, this has become an issue, so Australia needs a voice now. Yeah. It's like it's it frustrates and, and Australia can take the lead in so many ways, but it's so backward in others. It's, again, that's a yeah, we look for re- we, we look, No, no, we look for reassurance in yeah. a way. Yeah. That uh, I think I, I don't know why that is. Well, I have my own theories on it, I suppose. I think it's to do with our lack of finding our own identity and therefore mm. looking to others, and um, which I think is an interesting point to talk about in the context of sustainability because uh, it has been, uh, I guess, accelerated to use marketing speak or trend speak, but if you <coughs> were to sit down with Bruce Pascoe at this table now, he'd say, alternatively, it's 60,000 years in the making in this country and why haven't we caught up, yeah. you know? And um, so it is... It is um, like there's so many different ways we can take this conversation. You know, I think that uh, the power of the supermarkets uh, in perpetuating whatever it is they're perpetuating. Yeah. You know, those there's a whole bunch of reasons why things may not progress or come to light in the Australian context, which um, I, I find interesting. But in, in terms of your sustainability uh, quest journey, like where 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 it's at for you at the moment uh are you yeah where is it where, where, well you yeah. where's it at so so riding the urban cork like cooking and eating for a sustainable future really opened up i pulled back the curtain so i just wanted to create a conversation because i learned long ago that people don't like being schooled right that people don't like being told being what to yeah. do so in that book i just tried to present different arguments i just tried to you know peel back the layers of the industry and say well you know if you make this choice these are the consequences if you make that choice these are consequences and ultimately through that whole conversation i really wanted to push my point of value because so much about food is about cheap the conversation is about how cheap is this like oh they've got on special for this and leading back to the supermarkets that you know asparagus is on special for whatever cheap this is on special for whatever cheap but when you consider the word cheap, it doesn't take in the true costs of, of that product. It doesn't take in the true costs of the, 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 how the, the environment was treated, how the, how the workers in the production line were treated, yeah. the transport yeah. factors, all yeah. these things. Yeah. Like, I mean, so when, you, when I explore produce, for me it's all about value. It's trying to peel back the layers of what represents value. Was someone paid a fair wage to actually pick that garlic? Yeah. You know, did that garlic come from China? And where was that picked ethically and grown ethically? And what are the transport consequences of all that? And these are really big questions. And, you know, I'm just this little old chef in Sydney, right, with like a little bit of an education. But I just try, they're just questions that I, I wanted answers to. So I just really try to present Okay, so it's like, you know, it's not always about cheap and it's about priorities because people can always find, um, and it's my hallucination again, who am I to judge, but people seem to always be able to find money to buy a new flat flat screen TV. Mm. But when it comes to paying a little bit more at the checkout for a locally grown 
whatever, insert product there, then they, they ask questions. They go, well, if I, say, if I don't spend so much on the food that actually nourishes me, that actually keeps me alive and probably saves on my medical bills down the track, yeah. then I'll have money to buy a new car, but not just a new car, but the top of the line, mod- you know what I mean? It's all about priorities. And I get that people have different perspective on stuff, but I think in today's society, it's all about flash and bang and look what I've got. Where, you know, if we peel it back, are we any happier for that? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. But if we peel it back and go, okay, I, I can make a difference. And it's sort of like I can make a difference on how food is produced by actually making informed choices and actually showing supermarkets, for example, that, you know, I'm going to buy their organic range. And it's all about data. I mean... That's what they data harvesting yeah. is what it's algorithm yeah. data harvesting yeah. is the gold of the future right mm. so that's what they're looking at so every time we pay for a locally produced product or something that maybe has a little bit more of an ethical background to it that is actually recorded yeah and people see that people in in that make the decisions purchasing decisions yeah. see that stuff I, I want to ask some more questions there's if, if you look at uh, the reason I mentioned Bruce Pascoe, who for listeners is, uh, I guess, would be regarded as probably the forefront of Indigenous um, cuisine or Indigenous farming, sorry, I should say, in in Australia. Uh, the practices around our consumption levels of, well, of, of, of livestock in particular and imported livestock, so uh, lamb and, and beef, or um, which have... Globally, we know contributing to greenhouse gas emissions. Locally, uh, we've introduced and uh, and as Bruce would explain, sheep in particular devastated the landscape. Uh, and yet, we are increasingly aware of sustainability, uh, climate change. Karen, Karen just won in a very safe liberal mm. seat. Mm. We're aware of these things, um, but. Are we enabled? Are we enabled as a society to make the switch? And I think the observation I would have is that the supermarket supply chain is heavily geared to us not being able to make the switch. Mm. And if you so, if you look at like a regional town that is producing uh, um, produce to a decent standard, mm. for that produce to be consumed in the town in which it was produced, it needs to be essentially trucked into a central location and then shipped back shipped out, back. Yeah, which know. which someone would say does not make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, and so I, like, I don't know. I think that there's um, I don't know really where I'm going with this. I'm just looking for those um, those flashpoints or what is society about. I think we had Jess Miller on the podcast some time back, who was deputy Lord Mayor at the time, and we got together and ran a campaign. Sydney doesn't suck. Because we, yeah. we, we recognised <laughs> yeah. that there was an opportunity to kind of come in and quickly go bang, yeah. we can draw attention to sustainability yeah. uh, and 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 find a material way. Uh, and when you look at a lot of, I guess the future, and, and you're the expert here, so but where are those? You know, we had Josh Nyland on here the other day talking about increasing the yield out of fish from forty percent yeah, up to amazing, amazing right? Yeah. Like, are there other things like that that um, you yeah. see or thinking about? Because I think yeah. our listeners would be interested in where your head's at with that. Yeah, like, we could talk all day about this, I guess. But I, like sustainability to me was once about how the product is produced, 
right? But now it's, it's more of a holistic approach. It's like what it, how sustainable society, how sustainable are people's businesses within that society? What, what, so it's, it's a broader, broader thing. And back to the Indigenous culture, I mean, it's a travesty, the fact that we don't eat more Indigenous food. And I know restaurants that have tried, and this is where it's consumer-driven, right? And it's, yeah. it's, we all have a role to play in this because it's, it's okay, people go, okay, chefs, the vanguard of, like, culture and all this sort of stuff, and we'll, we'll direct people's, um, we'll direct cuisine and the direction people are going to go, but it doesn't happen. Unless you buy what we produce, we're out of business. Yeah. So chefs are businessmen too. So they have to be a little safe, right? Yeah. So I know places that, um, what was that fantastic, Edna's Table, that did um, just Indigenous cuisine, right? It went out of business eventually. Yeah. But the thing is, you have to buy it. We have to, you, know, you have to sustain the people that produce it. You have to sustain the restaurants that are taking the risk to actually produce Indigenous food. And, and I agree. I mean, I admit that I'm predominantly a plant-based eater. I mean, that's a choice that I've made. Um, people have the right to eat whatever they like, right? But that thing about sustainability and Indigenous food, perfect. I mean, if we all switched our diet to, to less cattle and less, you know, lamb and so on, then we probably would be in a better spot. Um, and because then it comes, you know, about conversion rates. It's how they're, they're, they're you know, degrading the land. There's all these other side issues associated yeah. to that. But I would say going forward with sustainability, I mean, my, my whole sort of credo is, is basically exercise more and eat less. And I would say eat less meat. And I, I'm not a, a vegan or advocate for a plant-based diet, although, I, you know, I respect those that do follow that that diet. Uh, but the thing is, if we all were a bit more discerning in what we ate and just ate really great quality meat, for example, but less of it, you know, we consume far too much animal protein as a society. So sustainability is spend money on great producers who are doing really great animal husbandry, looking after the environment, caring for the soil, doing all this stuff. I'm not saying don't eat meat. Eat it. Eat less. And it still becomes affordable. And my friend said, I know you love her, but it's over, mate. It doesn't matter, put the phone away. It's never easy to walk away. Let her go. It'll be okay. It's gonna hurt for a bit of time. So bottoms up, let's forget tonight. You find another and you'll be just fine. Let her go. I'm interested to hear how you you've approached product in relation to evolution because there could be two ways that you could do it you know obviously uh, a fairly moderate approach where you are known for doing something really well and and there are a couple of institutions um dining institutions that are, are like that you know maintained a very consistent product because that's what they're known for and that's what people love them for and they've been successful the other way is to constantly innovate and always be pushing the boundaries and coming up with new and exciting things to keep challenging people's perceptions of the business. What what has been your approach in, in respect to product and the theory behind it? Yeah, okay. I think that both really spot on examples of way you, you can go in this business. And I think from and this is just my personal opinion, with with you're gonna be at the vanguard of something and constantly reinventing and doing this stuff, then I think a smaller 
sustainable, smaller and when I say sustainable, maybe family run or you get a small collect group of chefs that are on, on purpose mm. and I can name several places that are like that and then you don't overinvest in all the silly stuff. You overinvest in the training and, and the product development like I just said or you go about being consistent. What is hospitality? It's about consistency and I think that's where Red Lantern is. We don't push the envelope or the boundaries too much but we have consistently over 16 years delivered a, a great dining experience. And so I, I laugh and I was just laughing the other day. I mean, I think I'm, I'm a bit fallen into that, you know, the, the Chinese menu of number 22. I'll take number 22 on the <laughs> menu because that's what I always have and you do number 22 really well. There's probably 60% of my menu now that I could not change even if I wanted to. Right. Right. So there's certain dishes that... The people will come to our restaurant for yeah and like our salt and pepper squid for example our master stock chicken our wok cross beef like these dishes just do not change uh another great dish we have is like uh rice cakes so rice cakes with prawn and pork floss amazing but we cannot take them off the menu and at first i was like i really dislike this there's a bit of friction around that i'm a chef i'm meant to be creative but then back to sustainability how do i sustain my business mm. And how do, I, how do you sustain anything? You, you play to the audience. There's something really hospitable about that, though. You know, like I remember a different podcast was speaking with Justine Baker and she was talking about Chiswick and the whole chicken or the lamb shoulder and that being woven into the fabric of people's lives. Yeah. There's something really... Romantic's the wrong word, but... Uh, hospitable is the right word. It's, it's coming. So, it's, it's almost like going back to mum's on a Sunday night for yeah. a roast, you know. Absolutely. It's that familiarity and the sense of comfort in being able to go and enjoy those kind of yeah, meals. But it's hard to achieve that in a, a rest, in a new restaurant. And you can't, obviously. You can't, but you know how it develops? It develops from human relationships. So it, it, it's, it's exceeding people's expectations. It's remembering people. It's, it, it, it's saying, hi, Mike, welcome. And it's about you really love this, you know, Chardonnay or whatever you were drinking last time. I've got this and I've got that. It's it's building that because it doesn't mm-hmm. take long. If you remember people, then you make them feel like a superstar. And who doesn't like feeling like a superstar? And so then they go, oh, I've got this great restaurant. They do great salt and pepper squid and they've got my favourite Chardonnay. You know, Luke, come along. I want to show you this. So then, you know, Mike turns up with Luke first time and – Mike's greeted like a superstar. Yeah. You're immediately impressed. You sit down, you have a great experience. Then all of a sudden, now you're in the family. And so I've just converted one raving fan into two raving fans. And it's just the, you know, Einstein once said that the eighth uh, wonder of the world is compound interest. Yeah, right. This is how you compound the interest in your restaurant. Yeah. yeah. You, you impress every single person who then brings somebody and you always try and remember them. Yeah, and when and there's so you know there's so much great technology out there as well. You don't have to be taking personal notes. You can input this stuff into your into your reservation systems. Mm. You know, like you take advantage of technology. Yeah, I mean it, it's simple. It's super simple, but it, it all comes down to someone to execute it, right? Like mm-hmm. someone to put that foundation in to encourage the staff to behave in a certain manner to set a culture that would not demand but would influence or compel them to to act in a way that you would want to have them act. 
Mm. How did you find the people aspect of actually converting what you want to achieve to actually um, reality, to actual reality? Yeah. You know, and, and you would have seen that change. The market when you first started Red Lantern from an employment perspective would be very different to what it is now. Yeah. Fair to say? Yeah, I'd say that that's that's fair. I mean, like, and initially, well, we always found it hard recruiting, actually, especially in the kitchen because it's like, you know, people didn't know Vietnamese food. And is this really going, going, to, going to advance my career if I work work for this guy, right? Uh, front of house is a little bit different because that's a little bit transient. Like I said before, it's mm-hmm. like people are usually on their way somewhere else. And, you know, it's still great people are still in the industry and make a career out of it. And total respect to them. And we've had career people through our front of house as well, which, you know, which is a blessing. Uh, but as far as... Back of house, getting people on board, it is about creating that, that culture and it is, it is about, again, taking it back to providing, educating, training because, you know, I did an apprenticeship and you said before, not everyone does these days. It's not mm. really essential to do an apprenticeship to become a chef or to open a business but I'm a firm believer that you need to know the rules before you can break them and you have to and if you can actually train someone and empower them to actually contribute because the thing is like you know i think long gone of that you know the, the chef who i i am the chef i am the dictator and and, and I'm, I'm the stalin of this kitchen right <laughs> yeah. it doesn't exist you've got to, you've actually got to be inclusive and everybody in, mm. encourage people to actually contribute ideas and you'll find that the six successful restaurants or successful kitchens are like that Everyone has an opinion and everyone can share their opinion. Not everyone, will, not all of them will fly, of course, but that's how you create a culture where people are confident to speak up. And if you empower someone to speak up, then they're empowered to go out and say, I work for this great restaurant. I encourage you to come and see what we do. I think, uh, and I don't want to misquote you, but we were talking about apprenticeships earlier and I think you may have mentioned that you're wanting people to come in with a bit of life experience or yeah. a bit of, I don't know, resilience? Is that where you're headed? A bit, with a bit, of, resi- like, a bit like, of resilience. It's like, you know, I said I, I came into Chef World at 27. I'm really glad that I did because yeah. I'd actually – and I'm still really quite introverted, okay? I work really hard to actually go out and meet people and I've invested in Pauline can, <laughs> can really attest to this. She'd constantly with me, get out and speak to the customer. <laughs> I'm like, but I'm the... So I've worked really hard to sort of get out and actually meet people because I'm quite happy to sit on a rock, right? <laughs> yeah. Really quite happy. Um, but the thing is about being a chef, like if you come into an apprenticeship straight from school, your life experience is very minimal. And what I encourage people to do and what I prefer is for someone to have this, you know, culinary epiphany later in life once they've established um, relationships, once they've travelled, once they've experienced the sort of ups and downs of the world because when you enter hospitality, you're probably entering, you know, there's a lot of antisocial careers out there. You could be an ambulance driver or, or, you know, emergency surgeon or whatever. Um, But it's really antisocial. You know, if you're a kid and you're just discovering life and all your mates are out on the weekend or doing whatever, hopefully they're drinking responsibly and, and, and contributing to this wonderful bustling nightlife that is Sydney. But you don't have the opportunity to do that if you're working in a, in a kitchen, yeah. mm. right? So I just think it becomes you, your longevity, longevity is there and that's a real 
problem in this industry? How do you retain people in the industry? Because you burn them out quickly. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, you get burnt out because you're socially disconnected. Yeah. You're emotionally disconnected. And a lot of time you don't look after your own health mm. because you're caught in this thing of you don't, you know, it's, it's a bit of a, a sort of a oxymoron, I guess, the fact that you work in a kitchen but yeah. you don't eat. Yeah. It's so true. And, you know, the thing about never trust a skinny chef, I would only trust a skinny chef because that's the chef who's doing the craft. Like he's not taking breaks, you know, and I don't condone that at all. Everyone should have breaks and, you know, get paid well and all that stuff. But the thing is it's that's it's that guy. I mean, it's, it's hard work. So I would prefer a much rounded human being come into my kitchen and then we can go to work because it's really hard. It's, it's isolating and it also has detriments. It's detrimental on your physical health and your mental health. And we all know that mental health is very important in, in today's world and especially given recent experience in hospitality industry as well. Yeah. And I'm really glad that there's more conversation around, around this topic. Uh, but I think longevity, if you come in as a more mature person, the longevity and, and being able to retain somebody in the industry is, is the chances are more um, are high. Mm. So, Mark, I've been doing quite a bit on trying to get people out and about enjoying Sydney. And in that task, I run into a number of things that can sometimes stand in the way. The one that has got on my radar, and it's been on there for a while, has been, and I say this often, is that we've made it so brilliant to be at home these days. Sure. Sitting on your couch, watching Netflix, pressing a button, your favourite burger arrives. Yeah. Just in time for five, four, three, two, one. Next episode, and away you go. <laughs> so true. And so, like that's a part of my perspective on it. But uh, in terms of home delivery services, generally speaking, in, we're in an industry now where, as we've been talking about, there's quite a lot of pressures on it. And and I guess uh, speaking to the specific uh, costs or value of some of these things, home delivery services have kind of come under a bit of scrutiny. In recent times, yes, and I think it uh, has only been what six months since Fedara, one of the three that yeah. arrived, mm-hmm. has uh, left our shores already. Um, and you yourself, for a man who thinks about things, where are you at with home delivery? Um, yeah, I actually really think that restaurants should concentrate on in house, like, concentrate on developing the most amazing in-house customer experience, great food in-house. Because every single cent that gets um, you make in your restaurant, you have control over where it goes. But having said that, I understand that the society in which we live today, it is. People are building their fortresses, right? Like there was a time when people would aggregate on the street and head to the high street and have fun, hang out at the pub, do all this stuff, hang out in cafes, which they still seem to do. Um, but now it's about having that flat screen TV, having everything brought in house. You've got Google, Amazon, everything just delivering stuff to you. So the expectation is now food. I want my food delivered as well. Fair enough. I, under- I understand that. Uh, 
the problem now for the restaurant and the small family-owned restaurants is how do I facilitate that? And the easiest, most obvious answer is when people come knocking are the big two. Yeah. So they'll come knocking on your door and say, we can do this. And they'll say, see how you got, you know, kitchen standing over there doing nothing at the moment? We can put them to work for you. And we can advertise your brand and we can we can list you amongst the 400,000 other restaurants that I've got on my app. Tell me how, you know, you stand out amongst 400,000. Uh, so there's a lot of pitfalls. I mean, it's one of those things I'll be very cautious about getting into home delivery because it's all hidden costs. We're going, we're speaking earlier about value and cheap and, you know, uh, it, it's a value piece for me around this home delivery thing. It's like, so home delivery, I think it's one of those things, it's the devil. It's one of those things that you caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, yeah I think The so. customer really wants it, right? They want the convenience of eating at home. But is the customer prepared to pay for that convenience, like truly pay truly for pay. that convenience? Because what the majority of people are unaware of is the fact that the restaurants actually pay commission. So they pay up to 35 cents in the dollar every time you, for every dollar you spend in the restaurant, they're giving 35 cents straight out to these delivery platforms. But that sounds pretty ludicrous in the sense that, like, if you're trying to make money as a restaurant and you're... Well, yeah, what's the average margin running on food in a, in a restaurant at the moment? Call it maybe 65, call it anywhere from 60 up to maybe mid-70. So if you're automatically taking 35% of your margin off food yeah. out the door... There's a lot of places that are in the hole straight away. Oh, absolutely. I did this thing on the other day on my Facebook when I was using Facebook. I now no longer use it. <laughs> um, but I actually broke down the cost of a cheeseburger. And I said, the selling price is okay. It's it's $12.50. Mm. And I said, already the restaurant probably should be, or the cafe or whatever should be charging 15 But I said $12.50 because that's what the market's prepared to pay. So then I just um, deconstructed all the costs. And I was actually in the red by $2. Mm. Yeah. By the time you, you pay for your product, your staff, yeah. your rent, your electricity, all this sort of stuff, and then the 35% or 35 cents in the dollar to your delivery platform, there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really, really hard. That's why I say think twice. Like concentrate on what you do well in-house before you start going out. But then if if that analysis is correct, there's there seems to be, as you said, 399,999 other restaurants who don't or are using it do you think that's a function of people of the restaurants not thinking it through do you think it's a function of uh consumers like yeah what like well you know correct this is an opt-in service no one's holding a gun to your head and saying you must provide this so this is opt-in but i would say consumer beware make sure you read the conditions of the contract make sure you're aware of your cash flow because a lot of Hospitality industries have no idea where they are. Earlier I said pay attention to the numbers. Yeah. Initially, you get all these home delivery thing um, orders coming in. Cash flow all becomes like, wow, this is really great for my cash flow, right? Yeah. So you're sailing along quite nicely. But then guess what? You have to pay your bass. You have to pay your staff superannuation. You have to pay, 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 pay. And then when you start to pay, on top of the 35% you're paying to... Uber Eats and Deliveroo and the like, um, you go, hang on, there's not enough money to pay. So how do we work our way through this? I would say if you are going to sign on to one of these delivery platforms, 
engineer a menu specifically for that platform. Yeah. So make sure your GP on these these products makes sense. Mm. So I would say that food costs no more than 15 to 20%. Does it come as a surprise to anyone that all the advertising on the buses and trains and billboards has probably three products predominantly, pizza, burger, and industrially produced fried chicken because they're all low-margin items. Yeah. Okay, so then let's talk about sustainability. Is this what we want our society to be? Yeah. Do we want, talking about sustainability, do we want obesity? Do we want all this, these health problems that are endemic with this style of eating to be normal? So the, the problem is how do you actually get healthy, good food on these platforms and make it sustainable? That's the challenge I'm putting out there. Yeah, oh, I don't know because yeah, I haven't yeah. solved that problem. I haven't solved well, that. You yeah. just have to have consumers pay, be willing to pay for it basically, I mean, a, a, an amount of money that's commensurate to making it sustainable and basically isn't that, isn't that what it's all about? Absolutely. I'm scared of huntsman's. Even though they're homeless, I don't like their numerous legs and find their eyes quite charmless. I'm scared of falling, not the jump, just the landing. A parachute is fine long as I still end up standing. Then the thing again is like sometimes it's hard enough, the real cost of something, right? Mm. There's been uh, in the media at the moment there's stuff about high-profile chefs underpaying staff and they charge a lot of money for this stuff and everyone should be paid correctly, full stop. But a lot of people coming down a peg a bit, they, they're producing food which is really high-end, but they're not charging what they should charge because the expectation of the customer is that there, yeah. isn't yeah. there. So now you're asking home delivery, like people at home, to pay more for the food that they're going to consume at home, which is healthy. That's a big ask. Yeah. It's a big ask because at the moment I think the $5 is pretty much a standard delivery fee and I think these companies are now exper- experimenting with a sliding scale of delivery from 350 up. I think it still caps at $5. I'm not exactly sure. I stand to be corrected. But ultimately, it's like everything in life. If you want the convenience of food, you should pay for it. Okay, so the restaurant shouldn't be the one subsidising your convenience. So if you want to eat home delivery on a Friday night or whatever, watch in front of the football, whatever, you pay for it, yeah. which, is, which is fair, right? So It, it seems to be. It's, yeah. it's fair. So it's a convenience that you should pay for. Like $5, not, that's not cut it. That's not enough. Yeah. And the thing that I, when I was watching it unfold, was it pains to try and do, especially to the restaurants, bars that get featured in Time Out, which is a, these are places that offer an experience, like without being cliche, they're, they're places that are worth going to. Yes. Right? Like, yes. And, and what I understood and tried to communicate with the trade was that your in-restaurant product is very different to what someone's going to get when it arrives later. Like they're two, they're two different, very different things. But I think where the delivery services have been quite clever um, 
well, I'm being polite, is in saying they're the same. Yeah. But they're clearly not. Yeah. And and they've what they've been able to do is use the brand equity that existed in a number of early adopters of Spot the service on. to build their own profile. So it's not the first people who came in who often got sweetheart deals. I'm not sorry I'm say sweetheart deal, but but they weren't on the kind of tariffs that you're That's talking exactly about. Right. Yeah. And then having got one to ten on, then they went to two to 400,000 and said, these guys are on, you guys should be on. And then the first 10 dropped off and then the rest are, there's been some pretty uh, bad, we've seen some, you know, quite terrible data in terms of reduction of footfall to precincts as a result Mm -hmm. of Uber Eats being introduced. So all of a sudden people are, who are coming down out of apartment blocks and buying street food essentially can now get up in their apartments and the minute that provider a switches off the delivery service it's just replaced with the generic the you know the the next restaurant that comes along that's the thing i think a lot of businesses don't think about when they sign up is that a patron potentially who could have walked in their front door and bought a burger and had a couple of beers if it's coming from a pub for example that's they're not gaining a new patron as much as the the, the aggregator will want to tell you. That's exactly um, right. It's not an incremental order on on top of their existing customer exactly. base. It's taking someone out of the venue who would have walked in and just letting them stay in their house. Absolutely, and I've got I've, I know from experience that say, let's say prior to all these delivery um, platforms, say 100% of the money was generated in house. Now I know from experience talking to people that up to 30% of their takings now is, is home delivery. That's scary. So up to 30% of what the, you know, the money they generate is, is essentially taxed at 35% as a commission. Yeah. And the thing is what you were just saying, Mike, it's so true it's because, because it's that thing, am I missing out on something? I've got to sign up. But the thing is you're one little person creating one little hamburger, for example, right? Once you are done and dusted, who cares? Because this industry is full of entrepreneurs who think they can do it better and bigger and better and and, and brighter. So someone else is going to put their hand up, so then the focus will go to them. They'll sign them up. So it's this rolling, rolling, rolling sort of production of like somebody drops it. It's like attrition. So somebody falls out and then but someone picks up the baton and goes forward. And these companies know this. Yeah. And that's and that's how they go ahead. But it's it's like it's it's eating away at the social like social fabric. And I don't want to be on my high high laws here, but don't worry, you'll fit right in. <laughs> <laughs> but the the, the, the the thing is, everything you said is so true. It's about social connection. It's a social fabric. It's about meeting at face to face, exchanging stories, your life. Yeah. You know, you don't get that at home alone on your couch. Yeah. <laughs> no, and I, I think that that's where I don't know. Maybe we can talk about this more as a industry but it really is I think important I would say to distinguish the out experience from the home experience and I would encourage industry as a whole this is what I'm trying to do with my nighttime work is to think about defending that as a category yes you know like the thing that you've just observed and I want to link you back a little bit to what you're talking uh, about Red Lantern specifically about your menu and those what some would say um, it, maintaining consistency of product as opposed to, you know, uh, changing it all the time. Like you, you, what the effect of that is is 
is to build a community and to build a experience that is familiar and can evolve. But the thing that will change if I come to your restaurant uh, Friday for lunch, by the way, book me in, uh, is that the crowd is going to be different on the Saturday night. And, and, that, and that means I'm going to have a different experience. Mm. Um, and, and it's these other things. It's the humidity in the air on, a, on, on the Saturday night that suddenly means that I want to drink, you know, beers alongside the spicy beer. All that kind of stuff uh, is, is not talked about mm. in, in terms of how we as a, as a collective of the nighttime uh, uh, or, or the out, the experience goers are, are defending it. And therefore uh, saying it is worth something more, you should pay something more. You know, and as um, as tougher, tougher, you've been very tough on yourself for being Mr. Introvert over there. But it matters to me that like um, you can come to a restaurant and don't have expectation that the chef is always there. But how wonderful is it when the person who has architected your experience out can be seen in the kitchen or can be seen nourishing the staff that are you know, and, and none of that, and none of that exists. Um, well, sorry. And that's just very different to taking a microwaved meal, sticking it in, mm. sorry, a, a defrosting a meal, sticking it in the fr- fridge. Sorry, I'm getting my things yeah. confused here. But you get my point. It's like yeah. the, the there is a category play here for, I think, um, the out experience to talk differently about what it does and consider home delivery to be just in a different category. Look, I I, I absolutely agree. The two separate categories, and I think they're, they're both valid. Like, yeah. At the end of the day, they're both valid. They're both valid. Okay, and the only thing that... I would really say is, you know, people be aware that if they want their favourite restaurant to be around, they'd actually remember to dine in occasionally, right? Mm. Because... Couldn't agree more. Convenience is fine. Convenience in this day and age is king. We've got kids, we've got busy lives, we've got this stuff. I get it. I get why it's so popular. But if you seriously want to have that establishment that is your favourite, that you've been raving about for years and taken all your friends, go and eat in occasionally right and better still sometimes it is convenient to ring because you're walking past you on your way home just ring ahead place your order walk in hey hey mike hi luke i'm here to pick up my ex here's the money walk at home heat it up later and guess what you've given all your focus to you've actually had a bit of a restaurant experience because you've you've met the people that you know and and you like and have known for all these years and you've spent your money in-house yeah essentially i um we had an office down in middle park in melbourne and across the road from it was a chap who was running a business called brody man and this is about three years ago and he he a very astute guy who went through all the services every single one of them and analysed the net value to his business. And then after about three to six months, he just canned them all off and employed his own delivery driver, as he had before. And then with every delivery, he would just give them free cover dumps. (laughs) Because that's essentially what it is, right? The the, the model is akin to the hotel sector. You've got this unused inventory, i.e. your lighting, your wages, your staff. You may as well get value out of it. His mouth was, well, let's just send home free Papa Dums and have my guy say hello to the person exactly. who's, you know, and I think it's something that's always stuck in my mind and 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 the important part of that is that you're not giving away your customer, you that's know. Right. So you can do the, which is what happens with the... the yeah. Well, that's exactly right because I read something on the weekend, I don't know where I read it, but basically 
uh, information is the gold of the next century, of this century, right? So people's personal information, when you sign on, I'm sure that you give all this detail because I'm not a member of any of these delivery <laughs> platforms, but I'm sure you have to give everything by your date of birth to become a member of that, and then they track your consumer habits as all these things do, okay? And so that is really the gold of this 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 new century that we live in. So I, I kind of think that I like to protect my gold a little bit and, and I, I don't participate in all these platforms and social media things anymore because, you know, there's something about the value that I offer and I want to retain a little bit of that value. And I think the gentleman you're talking about is absolute genius because he's he's found a way to work outside of outside of that, that the boundaries or restrictions of that, that platform. And it's, <laughs> I, think, I think that's fantastic. question um your favorite book um either you've recently read or one that you've you know you've held on to for a long time and uh or uh, a podcast that you listen to you think other people might take some interest in yeah sure well favorite book by far have to be Hemingway's for whom the bell tolls and i read that again recently and i took notes this time because i think that's part of my my approach to educating people about home delivery platforms there's a touch of gorilla sort of combat in, in the way I like that, I, that i want to do things so definitely uh hemingway yeah and as far as podcasts go like i really love rich roll like massive man crush rich roll is a, a vegan uh, ultra marathon runner okay. triathlon. he used to be a a lawyer. <laughs> Finally, that, that, that word has come up so so many times since today's conversation. But he has a really fantastic uh, podcast. He has so many amazing guests on his um, his show. Yeah, right. Okay, we'll share that for sure. Um, favorite album or artist that you're listening to right now? Well, right now I'm actually trying to learn the guitar, so I'm listening to uh, a guy called JB Winoir, uh, who okay. is a blues. Uh, um, Guitarist from the 50s, Alabama, yeah. Alabama boy. Mm-hmm. Are, are you picking that up from scratch or did you have a previous Gallet learning guitar? No, just from scratch. I just decided that, you know, I had a significant birthday recently and went, I've always wanted to play, so I just went out and bought it. It's like my cycling. I invested a serious amount of money on a bicycle, so I always use it. So I went out and invested a serious amount of money on a guitar and now I always use What'd it. What'd you buy? I've got a, I've got a Fender Strat, Stratocaster. <laughs> yeah. And do you play guitar? Uh, no, I used to, yeah. not for a very long time. My, uh, my father and my brother both play right. a lot. But, uh, yeah. we, we, we'll, we'll have to introduce you to Deshaun uh, from employees only who mm. has who was our last guest and has, has a similar similar investment in the guitar seat yeah well it's funny you know how i learned of course fender have an online yeah course. school do that it's, in, it's insane like yeah. it's insane like from nothing to you know and i said it to mates who used to be in bands in the in the 80s and 90s and i can play you two songs i said there you go anyone can play you two songs <laughs> <laughs> 
But, you know, two weeks in and I'm going, one, you know, feeling like, feeling like I'm a superstar. Yeah, nice. <laughs> uh, Favourite drink here right now? Ah, you know what? I just got turned on to and probably a little bit too late is the Four Pillars Bloody um, Shiraz uh, Gin. Yeah, it's very good. And I've been drinking that with pomegranate juice, fresh pomegranate yeah, right. juice, and that's actually inspired by a conversation I had with Yanni Christus the other week. Yeah, right. The chef I used to work with. Um, I'm going to give that a go. I've took it's insane. The, well, I kept threatening to buy a bottle during the first release, I think, last year, and then it sold out. That's right. I'm told it was an exceptional marketing ploy by the team of Four Pillars. They well, just intentionally think- ran a short release, but now it's in abundance. So and if we, keep, bottle, <laughs> if we keep saying four pillars, <laughs> we'll have to, perhaps they could send us up. That'd be amazing. Well, 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 I'll cut myself a wedge in that deal. Favourite venue? Where do you go to relax? You know, where I go to relax is the good old Clavelli Hotel. Yeah, right. uh, I live reasonably close to there. I have a dog, so I can go walk the dog in a dog park and then call by and have a meal and a, a quiet bevy. It's nice. Yeah, cool. Have a, like, like an open garden there, dogs yeah. welcome. Beautiful. Yeah, cool. And uh, finally, person, you've named a few people, but um, someone in the industry that you're most inspired by, um, could be someone you've had direct contact with or someone that you watch from afar and yeah. take inspiration from. Well, I think when I jumped into the industry, the, the person to really watch was Marco Pierre White. So I'd have to say Marco from that White Heat sort of era. You know, it's a book I, I bought and it's just got totally tattered, torn pages, but I've read it so many times. And, you know, the idea that a chef could be a rock star for, you know, this introverted guy from Brisbane, you know, he grew up in Brisbane, it was pretty awesome. And the food that he did then was pretty awesome as well. Yeah, right. Okay. Great. Well, mate, thank you very much for sharing uh, a whole range of topics. It was uh, so much to take well, away, but really appreciate you giving giving us your time today. Much appreciated. Oh, absolute pleasure. I think we did have a pretty broad conversation <laughs> yeah. there, right? It's always the way, but it uh, made a lot to take away from it, so thank you. Yeah, well, the bit that's yeah. united all of that discussion has been about sustainability of businesses, I think, and, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, a look to the past in terms of the history of yourself and also the Red Lantern Group, and I guess also just the last part of that debate about food services or delivery services um, is, is something for us to think about how we, we build a sustainable industry going forward. Yeah. So thanks very much for being on the back of our podcast. Uh, thank you. Thanks for making it so easy and relax. It's what we do. Yeah, cool dudes, right? Just <laughs> <laughs>
admirable, you know, you have to respect what they've been able to achieve. Yeah, it's, and it's been a bit of a theme on the podcast, hasn't it, since early episodes even. You yeah. think back to episode one with Danielle Allen from Two Birds Brewing, family business almost, you could construe it as, and then um, reminiscent of this was Josh and Julian Island um, yeah. with St Peter's, and I think there's some interesting thoughts between the sustainability of uh, businesses, food, staff, mental health, all these things are kind of interrelated, really. That's what I took out of it. Yeah, I think sustainability is something that's it's obviously not going away. You know, the topic is becoming more and more prominent and, and more holistic in terms of the way that people are treating it. And, and it's, it's a great example of the way people are approaching their businesses um, holistically on a sustainability front. You know, everyone thinks it's about produce. That's, the, I think, where most heads tend to go. But when you think about sustainability of people in hospitality, that's a huge topic, I think. People building sustainable careers, sustainable businesses um, that, don't, uh, that can withstand the pressures um, related to working in the environment, but then also that the third-party aggregators place on businesses as a, as a single example. Um, I, the conversations are only going to become more frequent, I think, around that topic. Agreed. And who's next up on well, the Back of House podcast? I think you've teed up that guest, so Correct. by way of introduction. Well, look, in all honesty, he teed himself up because he was begging to come on. I'm just giving him shit. But he, uh, Kent Anderson, um, well known throughout the industry, I would suggest. Very, very well connected, very good networker. But uh, he owns a couple of pubs, has been... Uh, Ken and I actually used to work together um, really in my first job in hospitality when I was a trainee manager at the Australian Hotel. And that was before he acquired the Glenmore Hotel with, with Marty Short. Um, now he's doing some really interesting stuff in training within hospitality and trying to assist businesses in deliver better, to, to be, deliver better training practices within their business. So, um, yeah, I think it, if, if nothing else, it'll be a, a good fun chat with Ken. Looking forward to it. <laughs>